This is an Alexandrian Media original podcast. Hey there! I wanted to catch you at the top of the episode to let you know that my Patreon page is changing its name and URL. Rather than the page saying Stephen Trigar and the URL ending with Stephen J. Trigar, the page is fully transitioning over to The Composer Chronicles. All members of the Patreon page will continue to enjoy all the same benefits as before, including early access to ad-free versions of every episode, access to the Patreon podcast unscripted, and all other benefits one can find at higher levels. So, if you are listening to this episode and you hear me reference patreon.com slash Trigar, that is no longer a valid URL, as I have changed it over to patreon.com slash thecomposerchronicles. I hope you enjoy, and I hope to see you on my Patreon page. Today's episode is part one of a two-part episode sharing the decline and revitalization of Russian composer Sergei Rachmaninoff's career. Today's episode will center around Rachmaninoff's link into depression after the travesty that was the premiere of his Symphony No. 1, while next week's episode will shed some light on how he managed to help himself out of that depression by composing and successfully premiering his Piano Concerto No. 2. I felt it necessary to pair these two pieces together because they were involved in a much larger story within Rachmaninoff's life and shouldn't be considered mutually exclusive. However, there's not enough time in a standard 20-minute episode to cram the events surrounding both pieces, so the pieces each receive their own episode, and the events surrounding each will blend together as one cohesive story between the two episodes. Also, my apologies to those of you who may have been confused with last week's episode. Episode 17, titled Opera Then and Now with Erica Willens, is in the form it should be in now on all podcast platforms. I had recorded that episode back in August and nearly had it immediately scheduled to go, and I neglected to update it with our new theme music. In an attempt to change it, I accidentally clicked save before actually replacing the intro and outro, which actually triggered two updates instead of one, so for that I apologize for the confusion. The main body of the episode remained up and available for those who listened, but it is now updated with the proper intro and outro. If you want to hear the episode with the updated segments, or if you really want to listen to the episode again, which I highly suggest because Erica was amazing, be sure to go back and listen wherever you get your podcasts. On the evening of March 28th, 1897 in St. Petersburg, Alexander Glazunov slowly walked to his position at the podium. There was something off about him. Was he drunk? Sick? Or just not totally with it tonight? Regardless, what was about to happen was a complete travesty. It was obvious that this new piece, Rachmaninoff's Symphony No. 1, was simply insufficiently rehearsed. The musicians seemed to be nothing more than amateur musicians attempting to be professionals, despite actually being professionals, and tempos fluctuated to the point where the audience began to lose sight of where the piece was headed. To the audience, the music was just... wrong. 
It was as bland and dry as it could possibly be. There was no enthusiasm, no emotion, and the orchestration made the orchestra seem lackluster. Rachmaninoff was embarrassed. In fact, he was more than embarrassed. He was devastated. This symphony, to him, was his greatest achievement. Not being able to bear listening to it any longer, Rachmaninoff left before the symphony was over. Although he knew what was going to happen next, he had hoped that the public and the critics would look beyond the tragic performance and see the music for what it was. Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov had tried warning him that the music was subpar at the symphony's rehearsal, but Rachmaninoff was too proud of his piece to care. While he did make several revisions to the score, there was nothing completely wrong with it, and the audience would surely look past his amateur orchestration. Unfortunately for Rachmaninoff, not many did. Even worse, it wasn't completely his fault. Glazunov, while physically present, was either drunk or mentally unstable during the rehearsals. As a result, the symphony was under-rehearsed, and the orchestra was not prepared for the premiere. Being a composer as well, Glazunov took it upon himself to make cuts and edits to the score without notifying Rachmaninoff. The cuts made little sense, and since Glazunov was not mentally available, Rachmaninoff took all the blame for that night's misadventures. Rachmaninoff plunged into a deep depression. For years, there seemed no end in sight, and the events in his personal life would only worsen the depression. From Alexandria Media, this is The Composer Chronicles, a podcast that delves into the stories of the world's greatest composers and their works. I'm Stephen Trigard, and this is episode number 18A, Rachmaninoff Ridiculed. During his final year of study at the Moscow Conservatory in 1890 to 1891, Anton Arensky, one of Rachmaninoff's composition teachers, assigned him to write a symphony as an exercise. The result was the posthumously published Youth Symphony. Unfortunately for us, three of the four movements were lost during Rachmaninoff's lifetime, and the Youth Symphony is made up of the single movement that survived. Neither Arensky nor Sergei Tanyev, a fellow professor of Arensky's at the conservatory, found Rachmaninoff's work to be suitable for any performance, and the seed that was Rachmaninoff's desire to write a more mature symphony had then been planted. In 1894, just a few weeks after graduating from the conservatory, 
Rachmaninoff began planning his Symphony No. 1. He already had tremendous success with his first piano concerto, and therefore wished to explore the symphonic genre a little further. The sketches began in September of that year, just after completing the orchestration of his Caprice Bohemienne. The composition process didn't begin until January of that following year. It took him most of the year to complete the symphony, which was quite odd for Rachmaninoff. He typically composed his works in just a short period of time, but this symphony had him stumped. By the summer, he had dedicated seven hours a day to composing the symphony, and when that proved to be useless, he bumped it up to 10-hour days until early fall. By October 7th, Rachmaninoff had the symphony completed and orchestrated. One theory for Rachmaninoff's writer's block was the death of Tchaikovsky. After the monolithic composer died in 1893, Rachmaninoff's compositional output began to decline. He lacked the inspiration to compose. Due to the lack of income because of this sparse compositional output, Rachmaninoff returned to teaching piano lessons. He even agreed to go on tour across Russia with Italian violinist Teresina Tua at the end of 1895 to make some extra money, but he quit before the tour ended because it was an unpleasant experience. Thus, he forfeited his performance fees from the tour and was still strapped for money. That same year, the composer became acquainted with the musical philanthropist and publisher Mitrofan Balyeyev. He was highly interested in programming a work by Rachmaninoff for the Russian Symphony Concerts in St. Petersburg. Rachmaninoff agreed and allowed his tone poem, The Rock, to be performed at the concerts in 1896. Coincidentally, that concert had been conducted by Alexander Glazunov, the Russian composer, conductor, and music teacher that would aid in the disastrous future premiere of the Symphony No. 1. Encouraged by both Glazunov and Taniev, the teacher who had disliked Rachmaninoff's first symphonic attempt, and happy with the outcome of the performance of the rock, Balyeyev agreed to program Rachmaninoff's newly completed symphony in the 1897 season. Money was becoming to be a major problem for the young composer. He had to pawn off his gold watch that was given to him by one of his first composition teachers, Nikolai Zveryev. Zveryev and Rachmaninoff became estranged after Rachmaninoff began to show signs of being interested in composition. Zveryev believed that composition was a waste of time for pianists with enough talent to have a solo career. But Rachmaninoff wanted to compose, and a rift then formed between them. After Rachmaninoff's first opera, Aleko, earned him the highest mark at the conservatory and a great gold medal, an award that was only given to two other composers, one being Taniev, Zveryev mended their relationship by giving him his gold watch. Now, Rachmaninoff was forced to pawn one of his greatest possessions. He didn't help the situation either. Aside from not completing his tour with Tua, he refused to compose anything until his Symphony No. 1 was premiered. To prepare for the upcoming performance of the symphony, Rachmaninoff played it for Taniev, who complained that the melodies within the work were lifeless and contained no emotion. No matter what the young composer did, the symphony's melodies could not be fixed. In response, Rachmaninoff furtively made several changes to the score. Now Rachmaninoff was dissatisfied with the work 
and so he turned to Tanyev again for guidance, who offered his assistance once again in improving the work. All these changes were made to make the work better, but in the end, it was all for nothing. We'll continue the story after the break. Without music be like? I certainly don't want to know. This podcast would not exist. Luckily, we don't have to find out what that world is like. I do a lot of listening in a day between all of my favorite music and podcasts, and it's not just for entertainment. I'm constantly doing research for this podcast and switching back and forth between apps to listen to a podcast episode and then a piece of music can get tiresome if I'm trying to quickly switch back and forth. From an episode of Hey Riddle Riddle to Stravinsky's The Firebird Ballet Suite and then to Lady Gaga's latest album, I can listen to them all on Amazon Music whenever and wherever I want. I start listening when I get into my car, and then when I get home, I switch over to my Alexa while I cook dinner for me and my fiancé. Listeners of this podcast can join me in listening to all of the best music and greatest podcasts on Amazon Music Unlimited right now when you sign up today at getamazonmusic.com slash thecomposerchronicles and get your first 30 days for free. You can get unlimited access to any song and do all of that listening without any ads. So again, go to getamazonmusic.com slash The Composer Chronicles and start listening on Amazon Music Unlimited today. Changes and getting the symphony premiered was all Rachmaninoff could think about. All other compositions halted in order to devote his attention to the work. Misfortune would again find the young Rachmaninoff in October of 1896, while on this compositional hiatus, a considerable amount of money that Rachmaninoff was transporting for someone was stolen while on a train. In order to recover all the money that was stolen, Rachmaninoff was forced to compose again. From this, he produced his opuses 15 and 16, the six choruses, and the six moments musicaux. Soon after the completion of these pieces, the Symphony No. 1 was premiered at one of the Russian symphony concerts headed by Balyeyev. After the symphony's first rehearsal, Rachmaninoff knew that the symphony was going to be performed poorly. He was so nervous that prior to the performance, he hid in a staircase until it was time for the work to face the world. 
as you know, the premiere was a disaster. The composer Cesar Qui compared his experience with listening to the music with the Ten Plagues of Egypt from the Bible, and dismally stated that nobody but suffering members of a music conservatory in hell could enjoy the music. The masses of critics that were there to witness the performance only had negative things to say about Rachmaninoff. None of them seemed to pay any mind to Glazunov's participation in the matter, even though most of the performance's deficiencies were because of him. If it were not for Rachmaninoff's friends and family, Glazunov would have gotten away with the whole ordeal. Rachmaninoff claimed that it was not the critical reaction to his symphony that led him into his depression, but the fact that the performance was so poor that despite all of his love for the work, it did not please him. So, he tucked the symphony away for just a short while before revising it into a four-hand piano arrangement in 1898. However, the symphony would never see the light of day again until after Rachmaninoff died. That second performance would take place on October 17, 1945, at the Moscow Conservatory under the conductor Alexander Gok. The reception at this performance was the polar opposite of its premiere. It was received with a great deal of praise, but the composer was no longer alive to hear it. Music historians and musicologists debate over what triggered Rachmaninoff to have his psychological collapse. Prior to this collapse, he had begun to work on a second symphony, but he abandoned any outstanding projects that he had. Composing was now impossible for him, and he would remain this way until 1899, when his friends and family persuaded him to be treated with hypnotic therapy by Dr. Nikolai Dahl. Now before I continue, I have a few other things that happened in this time period that I want to bring up. As the composer was no longer able to write, he was forced to take on other jobs in order to keep his fortunes up. He began to teach piano lessons again, and fortune found him when he was offered the position of assistant conductor for the Moscow Private Opera Company's 1897-1898 season. He happily accepted the offer, as he was nearly penniless, and his first opera as a conductor was Camille Sanson's Samson et Derrida. During this time, he also took up performing as a piano soloist in many concerts. It was also during this time that Rachmaninoff became engaged to Natalia Satina, who was his first cousin. Because they were first cousins, their marriage was obviously forbidden by law, and of course, both of their families highly disapproved of their relationship. By 1899, Rachmaninoff's depression worsened. Projects that he proposed to complete for various organizations were left unfulfilled, and even a visit by Leo Tolstoy, an event arranged by his aunt in hopes that it would revive his spirits, was unsuccessful. And this is where Rachmaninoff met Nikolai Dahl. Tune in next week to hear the rest of this story. This episode of the Composer Chronicles was written, researched, and produced by me, Stephen Trigar. The music was written by Daryl Banner. Other music and resources used for today's episode can be found in the show notes on alexandriamedia.org. The Composer Chronicles is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cron Podcast. That's C-H-R-O-N Podcast. So be sure to follow the show and share it with everybody that you know. Also, there is a membership to the show through Patreon. 
For as little as $1.50 a month, you'll get ad-free episodes, access to the member-only podcast Unscripted, and other resources for the show. Click on the link in the show notes or go to patreon.com slash stephenjtriger to become a member today. By becoming a member, you're directly supporting me, and it allows me to give you more content with even greater quality. If you like the show and want to rate and review it, the best place to do that is still on Apple Podcasts. Next week is the continuation of this two-part episode. We'll learn what turned Rachmaninoff's life around and the rebirth of his career, spearheaded by the composition of his piano concerto number two. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Alexandrian Media, Art and Culture for the Modern Era.